so you can let yourself see it and listen and whatever way is uh, both comfortable and easy for yourself. <coughs> These Monday night, this Monday night sitting group has been going on for uh, more than 16 years now. So um, I see it in some ways as a kind of reminder that it's not so much that there is a teaching for people to learn, although sometimes that happens, but more fundamentally it's a coming together first to sit in silence and listen to ourselves and then to listen even to the words in a way to sense what's uh, true in our own heart, in our own experience, and to use that um, for our awakening. So, this evening, I'd like to begin by telling an old African story. Um, some time ago, um, it happened that there was a man in Africa, in East Africa, who had a wonderful herd of cattle. And cattle were both the wealth in his community um, but more than that, they were also the source of nourishment and the source of um, uh, goodness and um, the expression of kind of human cultivation with the natural world. They, they represented everything beautiful. But he was a little bit um, uh, possessive of his cattle. So rather than keeping them out where everyone else let their cattle be um, grazed, he found a beautiful clearing deep in the forest. Um, now it happened that this forest was named Dukadukduk, was the forest. And the reason that the forest was named Dukadukduk was that it was a very deep, dark forest. And that's how your heart went as you entered it. It was that deep and that dark. And in the forest of Dukadukduk, in this beautiful clearing, he would go every day and, and milk his cows after they had been grazing. And he noticed at one point that the milk started to dry up. And so he gathered the most beautiful sweet grasses that he could to supplement what was in this cleared meadow. And he fed them everything and he, he loved these cows and he massaged his cows like Marin, I guess, right? Organic. <laughs> milk was drying up, and then it occurred to him, hmm, maybe someone is stealing the milk. So he went into the Dukadukduk forest at night, which was something, to sleep with his cattle. And it was a clear, starry night, and in the middle of the starry night, one of the stars, and then another, and then another, and another, got brighter and brighter, and they started to come down toward the earth. And as they got near the clearing of his most beautiful cattle, they turned into a succession of young star maidens with baskets. And the baskets were the African baskets that are so tightly woven that they can hold water, or in this case, milk. And apparently the stars have all kinds of wonderful things, <clears throat> but they don't have milk. 
So these beautiful maidens were coming down with their baskets and milking the cows and then taking that delicious milk back to the stars. <clears throat> so he waited and watched with his eyes really wide. And after they were just about finished milking, he ran out and he grabbed the arm of one of these beautiful maidens. And the others fled away. And he said, I see you really love the milk from my cows. She said, I do indeed. He said, well, I really love you. So how about if we make some exchange here? How about I have been looking for a wife to share these beautiful cows with me and my life here. How about if you stay? And uh, um, I've never seen someone as beautiful as you. And obviously there's something here that attracts you. Um, will, will you marry me? And uh, she agreed. And so she stayed. She had to go back to the stars for a short time and came back. She said, one condition, and that is that I must I'll bring with me this basket for milk and one other basket, beautiful basket, with a little cover on it. And um, I think we can live very, very happily, but you must not look into the basket with the cover on it, and I will stay with you and marry you. Hey, such an uh, offer, hard to refuse. So they were wedded quite happily for qu quite some time. And then one day he had been out working very hard, gathering sweet grass for the cattle and doing various things, and he came back to their house and noticed she was out doing something, and there was the basket sitting there. And he thought, she's my wife. This is my house. It's my basket. I mean, we share everything, right? And so he walked over and he said, it's been, we've been married, we've been happy. I mean, what's the problem? I'm curious, what's in this basket? He walked over to it and he pulled the top of the basket off and looked inside. And when he did, he began to laugh. He laughed and he laughed because there was nothing in the basket. And she came home a little later that afternoon and she saw he had a kind of smirk on his face, some kind of new expression, and he was chuckling to himself. And then she looked at him and she said, Oh dear. She said, Have you looked in the basket? He paused for a minute and laughed, and he said, Yeah, I looked in the basket. I mean, there was nothing in there. What's the big secret? You know, I looked in. It's okay. And tears began to weep down her cheeks. And she said, If you couldn't see what was in that basket, you don't understand. Because what that basket carries is the spirit that I brought down from the star world. Um, to illuminate our lives. And if you just laugh and say there's nothing in it, I'm sorry, I cannot stay with you. And as night fell, she disappeared with her baskets and went back to the stars. End of the story. Now, when one listens to these old stories, there is a kind of wisdom in them that can be found uh, even in modern times, they're kind of uh, the symbols 
for this human life that we've been given. And you'll find yourself drawn to some symbol in these old stories. Each time you hear it, it might be different. You might be feeling, if you were to place yourself in the story, you might be one of the beautiful cows. Or you might be one of her sisters, or the starlight. Or you might be walking into duk, a duk, duk, the great forest, you know. Or you might connect yourself to the spirit, the soul that's in the basket. Or the person, you might be the person who laughs and then realizes, oh, I've made a great mistake. You might be the person who broke their promise or the person who feels betrayed by another. So these stories speak on a deep way to us and you can reflect as you hear them, what's my place in that story? Now this beautiful story tells the truth. And the truth is that everything is wedded to nothing. That that basket of nothing, of spirit or emptiness or soul or whatever language we find for it, um, speaks of the fact that if we just look at our physical bodies, they're just a food body. I mean, you know, at the moment somebody dies, the same body is there. But something happens when you sit with a, a person at the moment of death and all of a sudden it is just a corpse. It's nothing. I mean, who are you in there? Are you this body? Who was born in this body? In the Heart Sutra, in uh, the beginning of the Heart Sutra, where the Buddha is sitting together with Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva and Sariputra, and Avalokiteshvara begins arising from her meditation to speak the truth of this world, she says, form is not different than emptiness, and emptiness is not different than form. Form is empty, emptiness is form. That which is form is empty, that which is emptiness is form. If you can understand this, you will be free in this world. Or, O nobly born, you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddha, Remember these words. Remember the clear light, the pure, clear white light from which everything in the universe comes, to which everything in the universe returns. The original nature of your own heart and mind, the natural state. Let go into this clear light. Trust it. Merge with it. It is your own true nature. It is home. So these are some of the Buddhist teachings in the essence of the Heart Sutra, or the text that's read to one who is dying, the, the Book of the Dead. And it's true. We're not just this physical food body, but we forget it. Everything comes out of this void, out of the um, silence before words and action and experience. And it's quite mysterious. I like Mary Oliver's line where she writes, I was a bride married to amazement. That's the marriage. Now we live in a materialistic culture. We're surrounded by it. And from that our perception can become quite one-sided like the fellow in the story. Um, filled with 
the things we have, the stuff we have to do, the stuff we make, our responsibilities, our cows, basically, our house, our computers, our mortgage, the stock market. It's sometimes why people go off to the monastery, monks and nuns, to remember that that's not the only essential reality. I remember my friend Ajahn Sumedho, who's the abbot of this monastery in England, a very fine teacher. At one point, someone was doing some research on the meditative life of the monks and nuns in the community, and they came and gave a bunch of psychological tests, including the MMPI, the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory. And he said, I, I was reading through this, trying to answer these strange questions, and I came to the one around sexuality, and it said, you know, how would you rate your sex life? Um, you know, um, un, um, unhappy, fair, good, excellent, and I didn't really know what to put, <laughs> you know, because they didn't really have a, uh, a scale for <clears throat> the way I relate to sexuality. We live in a world that's limited by the collective perceptions. And we forget that underneath this, consciousness itself, that which gives birth to the world, that who we really are, moves behind and in all of this. Rabindranath Tagore said, most people believe the mind to be a mirror, more or less accurately reflecting the world outside of them, not realizing that on the contrary, the fact is that the mind itself is the essential or principal element of creation. Or from the Buddha, all is mind-made. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we create the world, speak and act with an impure mind and heart, and trouble will follow you as surely as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. All is mind made. All that we are arises out of consciousness. Speak or act with a pure mind or heart, and happiness will follow you as closely as your shadow, unshakable. So when we come to sit and meditate, whether we're relatively new or done it for some time, we sit to awaken to this truth, to listen to the state of the heart, to that spirit that's behind all the actions, to remember the timeless reality of the spirit, what my teacher Ajahn Chah called the one who knows, our true nature. In its true state, it says in another great Buddhist text, mind is naked, immaculate, empty, containing all things yet not limited by them, timeless, transparent, being of the voidness that gives birth to all. To know if this is so or not, look directly into your own mind, to your own experience. Now, if we look at the instructions in the practices of the way of the elders from which this tradition comes, the elders of Burma and Thailand and India, Their practices are not just to look at the basket, but to look at the cows too. It's like that old Sufi expression, praise Allah, but tie your camel to the post. (laughs) And for some, people come to spiritual life 
it's easy to forget the body and the world of form. Sometimes, uh, Rumi puts it this way, he says, sometimes we put saddlebags on Jesus and let the donkey run loose in the pasture. (laughs) That is, we put so much onto the spiritual life that we forget the other side. And you end up with what one person described as a disembodied clarity. Do you understand that? And yet the Buddha said that it's within this fathom-long body and mind that all the teachings of sorrow and suffering and the end of sorrow and suffering, of joy and liberation, are to be found. And the invitation of the awakened ones, of the Buddha, of the lineage of the elders, is to use mindfulness, this capacity of awareness, to study body and mind, name and form, spirit and matter, consciousness and embodiment, and to find a respect for the truth of them as they are, both the cows, if you will, and the emptiness of the basket. There was a spiritual teacher I knew who had studied in India with one of the great masters of Advaita Vedanta, like Ramana Maharshi. And part of her way of teaching was to tell the students who came to her, you are not the body. Sit and meditate and reflect to yourself, I am not this food body, I am greater than this, I am timeless, I am not this body. So that was her way of teaching, you are not the body. It happened that as she grew older um, and got ill and was in pain and so forth, she didn't want to be a burden to anyone. She called her two children together with her and said, I'm not the body anyway. You know, I've been teaching this for years and I'm done with this. And she decided to take a number of pills and to end her life. Since they're not the body, it doesn't matter. So they agreed to cooperate with her. And she did this. Um, you know, they did a little ceremony. She said her goodbyes. And then she took the, uh, all the medicine and let go into the void. She also woke up three days later in the hospital um, because it wasn't enough or wasn't the right dose or whatever it happened to be. And then her children, adult children, came in um, and had a conversation with her after that. And it turned out that it was really very hard to participate in her mother's death in that way, that it wasn't so cool that she did that and that she asked them to help. Um, And then the conversation went further Um, because as all that started to come out, they also let her know that a mom whose main message was, you are not the body, was not actually a very good mom (laughs) for her children. (laughs) And so what she had to do was not only kind of get well a bit and come back for a year or two, but actually to make up for all the things that this you are not the body teaching had denied in her family. So to awaken to the spirit, the spirit that was carried in that basket, doesn't mean we have to leave and go someplace else. This is the place of the spirit. Even the stars come down to have our milk. One uh, person I interviewed for this new book, uh, After the Ecstasy, the Laundry, who is a... uh, Catholic father and a spiritual teacher put it this way. He said, I came from a poor white family where we drank and lived hard, 
The men treated the body like a truck that you used and ignored. In the church, it got worse. I hated to deal with my body. I lived on coffee, then on scotch. Gradually, as I looked at the simple people who came to talk to me and saw how many tortured bodies there were, as well as tortured souls, my faith and love got past all that stupid stuff about sin in the body in the church. It doesn't have to be so hard. I realized that Christ taught that I had to love my enemy, and so I took a vow of nonviolence, and this included my body. My practice became, do not torment myself, do not escalate the pain. I began to teach it to others. It turned into a practice of gratefulness and gratitude. I get up in the morning, and the care of my body is where I start. It's poignant how simple it is. Or Antonio Machado, his poem. The wind, one brilliant day, called to my soul with an odor of jasmine. In return for the odor of my jasmine, I'd like all the odor of your roses. I have no roses. All the flowers in my garden are dead. Well then, I'll take the withered petals and the yellow leaves, and the waters of the fountain. The wind left, and I wept, and I asked myself, what have you done with the garden that was entrusted to you? What have you done with the garden that was entrusted to you? We are here in this embodied mystery and the beauty of this embodied mystery. And it's the strangest thing. How did you get in here? To be embodied, to incarnate, is to live within a certain reality of beauty, the milk, the cattle, the sunset, the, um, the bay leaves that you can smell as you walk across the meadow, and the reality of aging and sickness the messiness and complexity of human experience. And the more we open ourselves to it, the more rich it is, art and love and irony and melancholy and humor and the indescribable opposites. You might desire some world of spiritual perfection, a kind of cool, harmonious place, yet we have Columbine High School and Kosovo and injustice, and racism, and continuing warfare, and our presidential elections. (laughs) We have weddings and divorces, and we have wealth and poverty. You know that thing I clipped out of the newspaper last year, AP, wire service, New York City, corpse ride subway. An unidentified man in his late 40s rode the New York subway for at least five hours today, police reported, before his body was discovered. He apparently boarded the subway during morning commuter hours and died unnoticed. As one subway rider on the line noted, hey, he could have been sleeping. It's crowded in there. If he minds his business and doesn't bump into anyone, who's going to say anything? He was certainly minding his business in this case. This is a strange realm that we're in, this human realm. And it is the realm of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. Thich Nhat Hanh, 
puts it this way. He says, Being awake with the kinds of suffering we encountered during the war can heal us of some of the suffering we experience when our lives are not very meaningful or useful. When you confront the kinds of difficulties we face during the war, you see that you can be a source of compassion and a great help to many suffering people. In that intense suffering, you feel a kind of relief and joy within yourself because you know that you can be an instrument of compassion. Understanding such intense sorrow and realizing compassion in the midst of it, you become a joyful person, even if your life is very hard. So the idea in spiritual life, the invitation of spiritual life, of awareness or mindfulness, we could call it a sacred attention, is not to hurry up or to fix or make this human realm perfect or better. Anybody succeed in that? Perfect yourself or something else? Nor is it to ignore it, but rather to awaken to what is each day as we need it in our bodies, in our hearts, in our minds, in our family, in our community, on this earth. To see it as it is and to illuminate it with the heart, to illuminate it with our understanding and our compassion, to find the basket of spirit that is here and let that spirit shine in this human realm. And we know that it's possible. In fact, it's one of the deepest of human longings to wed these worlds, to bring that that shining starlight, that spirit, into our love relationships, our, our work, our community, our garden. This from Rumi. One night a man was crying, Allah, Allah. His lips grew sweet with the praising until a cynic walked by and said, So, I've heard you calling out, but have you ever gotten any response? The man had no answer to that. He quit praying and fell into a confused sleep. He dreamed he saw Kadir, the guide of souls, in a thick green foliage. Why did you stop praising? Because I never heard anything back. This longing you express is the return message. The grief you cry out from draws you toward union. Your pure sadness that wants help is the secret cup. Listen to the moan of a dog for its master. That whining is the connection. There are love dogs, thousands. No one knows the names of all of them. Give your life to be one of them. This longing, our very messy life, our love, is the message that carries the Spirit. There's something in us that wants to love, to be connected, to carry that beauty that we know and bring it into life. How to open to this mystery, how to keep it alive, that's really what spiritual life is about. We undertake the practices and the disciplines of meditation or loving-kindness or coming to 
you know, sweat together on Monday night sauna this week, you know. Um, to remind ourselves that we can inhabit and tend and care for and illuminate and embody that beauty of the heart in this world. And the practice of sitting and feeling our breath and body and noticing the mind and the stories and the great space within which it happens brings us back that spaciousness from which everything is born. It's not a goal, not some great thing to perfect yourself and make yourself better and, you know, judge yourself. I mean, that would be silly. You can't fix yourself very much, you know. Maybe you haven't noticed. (laughs) (laughs) The idea is to bring a genuine love to of genuine presence with this body and mind as it is. And it's possible. A story, this is from John Lewis, who is uh, one of the main figures in the civil rights movement in the 60s. Um, and then after that, it's done all kinds of um, very uh, dedicated and wonderful things with his life. And it's a story he actually told in the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, a few years ago, from his childhood. He was there in the South, in Pike County, Alabama, on one particular afternoon, Saturday, with about 15 of his cousins and brothers and sisters at Aunt Seneva's house, playing in the dirt yard, and the sky began clouding over, and the wind started picking up, and lightning flashed, and they all ran to the house. His mother wasn't there, only his aunt. And she got, got outside and she said, come on in. She herded everyone inside. The sky blackened and the wind grew stronger. And her house was not the biggest place around. And it seemed even smaller with so many children squeezed inside, small and surprisingly quiet. And all the shouting and laughter that had been going on earlier outside had stopped. The wind was howling and the house was starting to shake. And we were scared and even Aunt Seneva was scared. And then it got worse. Now the house was beginning to sway. It was one of these great kind of tornado storms. And the wood plank flooring beneath us began to bend. And then a corner of the room started lifting up as the wind howled. And I couldn't believe what I was seeing. None of us could. The storm was actually pulling the house toward the sky with us inside it. And that was when Aunt Seneva told us to clasp hands together, line up and hold hands. And we did as we were told. And then she had us walk as a group toward the corner of the room that was rising. And from the kitchen to the front of the house we walked, the wind screaming outside, the sheets of rain beating on the tin roof. And then we walked back in the other direction as another end of the house began to lift. And so it went from one corner to the other. Fifteen children walking with the wind, holding that trembling house down with the weight of our small bodies. And more than half a century has passed since that day and has struck me more than once over the years that at is our task if we wish to live in a just world, in a society of goodness for one, with, for and with one another. The Buddha, sometimes called the Blessed One in text, I like that word, kind of name for him, 
would visit with people over and over again and he would say, it's possible to live your life in a way illuminated by the Spirit. It's really possible. It's possible to live your life with your heart free. And if you train yourself in mindfulness and awareness, you can remember that spirit in yourself, that spirit that illuminates all things. You can release the body of fear, the small sense of self. You can discover that freedom that all awakened ones discover. And he would go from place to place and talk about the three illuminations, the three luminous practices, the three trainings, as reminders. The first of them was the training of compassion, and in particular the compassion of non-harming, of wise conduct, of respect for other beings in this world. Because there's a fragrance, an illumination of the heart, that, that which is held in that basket, a kind of light that comes when we speak the truth, when we care for other beings. I mean, in the simplest way, it's very hard to meditate after a day of killing and stealing. I mean, anybody knows that. And so the teachings of compassion are to not kill, to cultivate a reverence for life large and small to not steal, to care for the things of this world, to not be piggy, but to actually express our love through the things of the world, to speak that which is true and useful, to not harm other beings through our words and our deeds, no matter what. And our words and our actions and the things that we work with and the community around us, they are the field for the expression of this heart, this spirit. To not create injustice, but rather to respect all beings. And what happens if we undertake this practice of wise conduct or compassion, of respect for all beings, is that the heart becomes luminous, that that light that's carried in that basket starts to shine out of us. Like Martin Luther King Jr. said, I'd like somebody to mention on that day that Martin Luther King tried to give his life to serving others. I'd like somebody to say that day that Martin Luther King tried to love somebody. I want you to be able to say that day that I did try to feed the hungry. I want you to say that I was a drum major for justice, a drum major for peace, for righteousness. I just want to leave a committed life behind. Or Eddie Hillison, who wrote from the concentration camp, you must be able to bear your sorrow, even if it seems to crush you. You will be able to stand up again, for human beings are so strong, and your sorrow must become an integral part of yourself. You must not run away from it. Do not relieve your feelings through hatred. Do not seek to be avenged on your enemies, for they too sorrow at this moment. Give your sorrow all the space and shelter in yourself that it is its due. For if you do, instead of reserving most of the space inside of you for hatred and revenge, then sorrow from which new sorrows will be born, 
If you give the sorrow the space it demands, then you may truly see that life is beautiful and rich. So beautiful and so rich that it makes you want to believe in the divine. So the Buddha went around and he said, there's a way of living that illuminates the spirit, brings it into embodiment through our words, our deeds, our actions, our compassion to one another. The second training, the Buddha said, not just opening the heart, but quieting the mind. Have you noticed that when the mind is quiet, then the light that we carry shines? So the second of these luminous practices is the gathering together of the mind, the unification of the heart. If thine eye be single, it says in the Bible, the whole body will be filled with light. Or W.S. Merwin, who said, I say to my breath once again, little breath, come from in front of me, go away behind me, Row me quietly now, as far as you can, for I am an abyss that I am trying to cross. And the simplest thing of just coming back and feeling your breath, when you feel hurt or afraid or stressed or lost or confused or unforgiving, just to feel this life breath and realize that it's possible to be here and live in the reality of the present. That's all we have, this eternal present. Brings us back and the mind starts to quiet and you say, boy, I really lost it, didn't I? And then just another breath, here we are. And the truth is that we love this wholeness. It's not about struggle. We love the wholeness when we listen to a piece of music and lose ourselves in it. We love that oneness in lovemaking, in swimming. Thoreau put it this way, He said, many men go fishing for their whole lives without realizing it's not fish they're after. (laughs) The fishing meditation, if you will, that place, literally in fishing, of being in solitude and just listening and waiting. But fishing is really the metaphor for something bigger than the fish in in the stream. And when we respect this second luminous practice, then we look in our lives to see what allows an openness, what allows a quieting of the mind, what trains that steadiness so that that steadiness allows the shining of our being to come forth. And this compassionate attention or respect for life around us, the quieting of the mind, the opening of the heart, are the gateway to the deepest wisdom, to our innate wisdom. As we get still and silent and listen deeply and sense deeply, we can see that nothing can be held, that form is emptiness, that yesterday is gone like a dream, like a bubble, like a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, that everything that comes into existence according to certain conditions, will at some point pass away. We can see that the sense that we're separate from all things is a a myth, is a fiction. That this body 
and heart and mind is interconnected. This breath, this, this being of cells that replenish themselves every day is the water that rains and the food of the earth. And even the thoughts, they're not your thoughts. A lot of them came from you know, magazines and books and television. They were other people's thoughts and then you repeat them. Isn't it true? I mean, you eat with your mind too, unfortunately. You know, and sometimes we don't watch our diets very much. <laughs> but you begin to sense that the whole idea, this is me and that's other, is simply untrue. And with this, the small sense of self drops away in moments we all know this. The beauty when the body of fear drops away. And we realize not just as an idea, but as an experience, that love that connects us with everything. And that's timeless. Even when someone we love is dying, there's also something eternal that we share. But it lets us be with this life, with the spirit that's in that basket. Wisteria vines thrive in poor soil. Their secret is something called rhizoba. This is microscopic bugs that live underground in little knots on the roots. They suck nitrogen gas right out of the soil and turn it into fertilizer for the wisteria plant. They're not part of the plant, they're separate creatures, but they always live with it, a kind of underground railroad moving secretly up and down the roots. There's a whole invisible system for helping out the plant that you never guess was there. It's just the same with you and me, with all people. The wisteria vines on their own would barely get by, but put them together with rhizoba and they make miracles. How do we unite this world of body and spirit? A Zen master I know was telling me about a person on a retreat whose father had died in the year before and was grieving greatly. He allowed her to weep and grieve and so forth for a long time. And then he gave her a koan, a question to answer. She was missing her father so much. Where is your father? Where is your father now? And she asked the question over and over, where is my father? Is he in heaven? Is he all around me? What happened to his spirit? It's really mysterious. Where does somebody go? They seem so alive. What happens to them? And she would come in each time with a different answer. He would nod and say, where is your father now? Over and over. And finally, one day she came in after a number of days of the retreat and he asked her, where is your father now? And she got up and she started to dance around the room and she said, I am my father. I carry my father in here. I am my father. He's nowhere else. He is here. We are the basket. We are the basket. Kabir puts it this way. He said, inside this clay jug, this human body, there are canyons and pine mountains, and the maker of canyons and pine mountains. All seven oceans are inside, and hundreds of millions of stars. The acid that tests gold is in here, and the one who judges jewels, and the music from the strings no one touches, and the source of all water 
If you want the truth, I'll tell you the truth. Friends, listen. The Holy One I love is inside. I remember we were at a teacher conference some years ago, and Robert Aiken Roshi, who is a senior Zen master in America, one of the most senior Zen masters, was talking to us um, and giving some kind of final words. He was about to retire. He was in his 80s. And uh, talked about his whole life and how he had learned Zen and what it meant to him to teach and practice for more than 50 years. He would learned it in a prisoner of war camp in Japan is where he started studying Zen in the Second World War. And um, when he was getting finished his talk, he talked about all these years of teaching koans. I raised my hand and I said, Roshi, I said, before you finish your last talk, would you give us the answer to one koan? <laughs> Just teasing him to see if he'd do it. And he said, all right, I will. And so he got to the end of his talk and he said, one of the first koans that was asked to me, one of the first puzzles, was asked by Nyogen Senzaki in New York City in the 1950s um, when I met him and studied with him. And I went to his apartment to practice Zen and on a table by the door was this beautiful bowl that had a spiral ceramic bowl that went from the center to the rim. And as I was leaving the apartment one day, Zen Master Nyogen Sensaki picked up this bowl and turned it to me so I could see the spiral. And he said, my koan for you is this. Does the spiral go from the outside in or does the spiral go from the inside out? You tell me. And I would go back to him every week and try to give him an answer. It's both, it's neither, all these kinds of answers. You know, what's your answer? Hmm? Does it go from the outside in or from the inside out? None of those answers were satisfactory. And finally he said, I came to the answer of the koan. He didn't tell us how long it took. And I'll tell you that now. And he'd been sitting for quite a while talking, and he was 80, and he was kind of frail. And so he stood up, and as he stood up, he was trembling a little bit, because he'd been sitting for a long time. And he looked at us all, and he spread his arms out like this, as if to become that bowl. And then he turned one way, from the outside to the center. And he smiled, and he turned back. And he turned the other way, from the inside to the outside, and looked back. And he was the bowl. And then he bowed and he sat back down. <laughs> there you have it, the answer to one koan. <laughs> there are only 499 more for you to solve. There is a wedding, a coming together, a presence, a sacred presence that honors both the body and the spirit the joys and sorrows of this human life, this fathom-long body that we've been given, in which are found all the sorrows, all the suffering of the world, and all of its redemption, the end of suffering, nirvana, liberation, right here in this fathom-long body, nowhere else. And when we take the time to meditate, to pray, to whatever your spiritual practice is, what we're doing is really listening, 
making the time to allow that which is true to awaken in us. And then we enter the marketplace and the shops and arts and business and politics, even politics, with a wise and a loving heart. We understand that freedom is possible not just there, but here. In fact, it's the only place that freedom can be found. Not going away, but being in the reality of the present with things as they are. That is the place of the freedom of the heart. Not going forward, as my teacher said, not going backward, and not standing still. So let your eyes close for a moment. We'll sit. And as we sit quietly, a couple of questions for you to reflect on. The first reflection is to ask yourself whether it is the basket or the cows that need tending in your life. Whether it is the earth and your own body in the form of things, or whether it is the spirit, that invisible spirit that illuminates. And secondly, reflect on your own spiritual practice. And what is it that steadies and returns your heart, your knowing, that awakens you in the midst of this life, that brings this, uh, the spirit illuminating as you move through this world? What nourishes that? It's an amazing thing just to be alive as a human being and not hungry or without shelter and food and so forth, to be alive and blessed in many of the ways that we are, even though we each have our struggles, and to be able to awaken so that life is not simply getting through it, but to sense this mystery and the beauty of this spirit and bring it to all that we touch. So that's some um, reflections for the evening.
A couple of very brief announcements and then we'll do a short chant and go out into the evening. Um, I will be here teaching next week and the week following Monday night will be led by Eugene Cash and then I'll be back the week after that. Um, I want to thank people for their donations and their support of Spirit Rock. I'm very grateful for that. Be careful now that it's um, dark after class in the parking lot with all these cars. Drive politely with one another if you can. Um, and feel free to come here on retreat. If you never have, do a day, a weekend, a week retreat. It's kind of a magical thing to do. Um, or just come and walk the land. Let this be one of the places that nourishes you where the basket comes down from the stars. So the chant tonight is uh, the chant Namo. And in India, when you meet a uh, person um, in greeting in Hindi, you put your hands together and say Namaste, which means I honor the divine within you. Or another simple translation means I see you, I see who you really are. Um, and the root of that word namaste, this word namo, means to honor or bow to something. The beginning of many Buddhist texts start with this word. Um, there are a number of people that I've heard from this evening and in the past week in our community and loved ones who are ill or in difficulty. Um, and so when we chant this namo as a kind of bow, as a blessing, you might also think of those who have um, illness or who have died um, and offer your prayers and loving kindness and blessings to them far and near. We'll chant nine times and then go out into the evening. <coughs> Na -mo. the time this week to quiet the mind and open the heart and let that spirit, that harmony you heard in the Namo shine in you and 
what you touch and do. Good night. Thank you. For those who can, be helpful to stack the chairs up. Would Judith uh, Falstein come up here if she's still here just for a moment?